Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter with host Brooke Benson. Over the next hour, you'll learn from experienced professionals the options you have to make smart decisions in your own divorce journey. Now, here is your host. Hi there, my name is Brooke Benson. Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter. I saw a wedding planning magazine and realized people need the same kind of guide for getting unmarried. I do not advocate for divorce. In fact, I don't even get involved in relationship issues at all. If you decide to end a relationship or your partner does, I'm here to help with sensible, practical, and often low-cost ways to prepare for the split. Only when you know what you want can you work towards your own best outcomes. And there are many professions with specialties in the area of divorce. This show is dedicated to hearing from them, compiling some of their best information and incorporating it into my workbook by the same name, now available for download at planfordivorce.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Today, we are very fortunate to hear from two people with lots of experience in the topic of divorce as it relates to business ownership. My guests today are going to be on the air together. Um, This is a new format. This is sort of a panel discussion. These two people know each other really well. So I'm looking forward to getting all sorts of great information out of them. Sarah Goodman is an accomplished mergers and acquisitions advisor and founder of Eminence Merger and Acquisition Strategies, where she provides personalized guidance to lower market business owners seeking to exit their companies with revenues between five and $50 million. In addition to her advisory role, she's an active angel investor and holds a strong presence in real estate investment sector. She's a public speaker, contributor, and podcast guest. Her breadth of experience and industry knowledge positions her as a formidable leader. I love that word, formidable leader in the M&A field. Brian Walters is the founder and chief executive officer of BWA Valuations. He brings a wealth of experience and education to every engagement in which the value of a business needs to be determined. In his role as the primary valuation expert, he frequently is called to develop valuations of businesses for divorce and marital asset division. He also evaluates family limited partnership interests and uh, works collaboratively with both sides of a dispute and only goes to court and testifies when absolutely necessary. So both Sarah and Brian, so thrilled to have you here. You know, it's always a pleasure to be on with you and Sarah. You are one of my favorite people. I tell you that every day. Good to see you as well. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here, Brooke. I'm uh, hopeful that we're going to be able to um, have a great discussion here. I've really been looking forward to this. Awesome. Well, so have I. And just for our listeners, these two are great hangout people as well. We've had a really good time sitting around just laughing and making fun of our kids, right? <laughs> uh, that's what that's what uh, the, the best business colleagues are the ones that 
are both experts and you can have a great time with. And I would count you both in that column. So. Absolutely. So much fun. Okay, so I think the easiest way for this to go is I'm going to ask a question and call on each of you to give me some uh, information on that topic. And if either one of you kind of wants to jump in, maybe just you know give me the high sign and we'll take it from there. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and Sarah, I already told Brian, and I'm going to go ahead and tell our listeners, my air conditioning is out, so I'm not recording the video today. I'm uh, only barely dressed because it is quite warm in here. <laughs> okay, here we go. So for business owners going through a divorce, there are additional, I feel like, questions and concerns, um, If particularly if they you know own the business together. Um, I would say probably the primary one is with marital asset division, but that's directly related to, first of all, figuring out how much the business is worth. So when you're going through this kind of process in a divorce, how is the business valued? Brian, let's hear from you first. Thanks for the question. I will stipulate for purposes of answering this that excuse me, that there's just one owner. In other words, the spouse owns the business and the other one is not involved. It's a cleaner answer. And then we can go into the other response later if you'd we like. We can get into but, the messy stuff afterwards. Exactly. So assuming we're living in a community property state and there is a, a business that is owned, that business needs to be valued because half of the value of the business goes to the spouse. Once again, let's just say for argument's sake that it is 100% interest that is owned by the business owner. First, the overall value of the business needs to be determined. Without turning this into a business valuation class, there are a number of different approaches that can be employed to get to the value of a business. Typically, a business valuation specialist is going to need to look at all of the potential uh, valuation methods and then key in on potentially one, sometimes two, sometimes as many as three, and then you do sort of a weighted average depending on which result you think is more relevant. And that gets you to a total value. But then there are a couple of really important adjustments that need to be made. The first is something that is known as personal goodwill. We might get to that later. I'll just say at a, at a high level, personal goodwill is the portion of the value of the business that's specifically due to the business owner. That's important to determine because generally speaking, courts treat personal goodwill as being non-divisible. So if the business is valued at $5 million, but the, the personal goodwill is determined to be $3 million, then you're not splitting up $5 million, you're splitting up $2 million because personal goodwill, generally speaking, is not divisible. The second element, and this doesn't always apply, but it, in my experience, it almost always is a factor, is because it is a privately held business. It's not a publicly held entity. So if you were to determine that you wanted to sell that entity, there'd be a series of steps that you would have to take to determine what the value of the business is. You'd have to contact Brooke, uh, Brooke, sorry, you'd have to contact Sarah to say, please list this for me. There's several different steps that have to be taken. So it is not as marketable as a publicly held interest. 
And so in most instances, you have to calculate and apply what's referred to as a discount for lack of marketability. So to summarize, top line, you need to know what the business is worth. After you determine the value of the business, you need to determine the portion of the value that's due to personal goodwill, and that has to be subtracted. And then you have to determine the discount for lack of marketability. Apply that discount. What you have remaining is what generally is divisible between the two spouses. Sarah, what would you add to that? Yeah. So what I would say is I take kind of a broader, um, I'm going to zoom out a little bit on kind of business valuation. And it's actually uh, really common um, that business owners, which a business may actually be one of their largest assets, that they don't know what the business is worth. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out about business valuation. People sort of um, have this idea that a business is valued off of, you know, a particular um, revenue multiplier. You know, people will call me and say, well, my my friends sold their business for 10x times revenue. (laughs) And I always, Brian's laughing. um, And I always kind of say, oh, that's interesting. You know, (laughs) tell me more. (laughs) Tell me me more about the type of business, because really what, 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 what Brian is sort of saying is when we think about the value of a business, I'd like for you to reframe the, the value of a business away from what maybe you've heard or read in the, you know, in media and think more about the intrinsic value to a purchaser or an investor. And we call that fair market value. And fair market value, as Brian kind of described, you have to think through these kind of different elements, revenues, how this business compares to others in the marketplace. As Brian says, you know, maybe lack of marketability. Um, is this business actually sellable? Is there is there a benefit to someone to, to buy it? Or is it just a benefit to the owner? There's a number of factors we have to consider. And as a, a business owner is kind of approaching the divorce, it can be a sort of added layer of, okay, how much of my business am I going to have to give up? You know, h- how are we going to navigate those pieces? So I always kind of remind people, whether you're planning to exit your business in 10 years, 15 years, whether you're uh, facing an event like, um, you know, a a divestiture of a a percentage of shares or share to a partner or shareholder or to a departing spouse, um, all of those things are factors that are related, but really separate to the intrinsic fair market value of the business. So I just wanted to kind of make that distinction. And my other kind of comment to Brian, while it's top of mind here, the the amount that we attribute in a business to personal goodwill can also have tax implications, which is another really important factor of this conversation is should there be a sale or um, a distribution, there are tax components of that. And, and certainly personal goodwill can play um is one tool in a a business valuation where we can create some tax advantage as well. But I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more later this hour. Okay, great. So can you just summarize really for me and also for our listeners, how would you, if you had to give just the quick elevator definition, how do you describe fair market value, Sarah? 
fair market value is the the value of a business when on the open open market. It definitely does have a little bit of variability. I say all the time, just like beauty, um, value in a business is in the eye of the beholder. Um, it, it can be less discreet, you know, to an actual penny or dollar. But for fair market value, we're looking at the price of fair market, um, you know, a business of going concern to an independent third party buyer. What would be a reasonable and fair price for that business on a total sale basis? Brian, do you agree with that? Is there anything you would add? I agree definitely with that. There's actually a book definition of fair market value. And that definition is the price that a willing buyer and a willing seller would arrive at if both parties have full knowledge of all relevant facts and neither party is in, in any urgency to conduct the transaction. So at, an, at a, again, a 10,000 foot level, that's what the definition is. It certainly accomplishes or incorporates everything that Sarah just said. But if you wanted to do sort of a, a dictionary definition, that that's what it would be. One thing to highlight also, and this relates a little bit to what I was talking earlier about when we discussed the discomfort, lack of marketability. The two terms that sound very similar, fair market value and fair value. Fair value can be in many ways similar to fair market value, but the only difference is that fair value typically does not take into account any discounts. So for example, <clears throat> if a business is valued at $10 million and there is a, a an owner who owns a 40% interest, the fair value of that owner's interest is $4 million the fair market value of it would likely be much less than that because then you'd have to discount for lack of control and lack of marketability. So again, without being too technical and getting into the weeds, at a high level, fair value and fair market value sound similar. The difference being that fair market value takes into account any discounts. And you know, you think about it, it would make sense if you have the opportunity to invest in, an ent in, in, a, in a company and you have two choices. You get to... Uh, to invest a controlling interest versus a non-controlling interest. A hundred times out of a hundred, you would prefer to invest in the controlling interest because most people who are in a business with a business opportunity would want to have control over that investment. So fair market value dictates that if I'm not going to have control, in other words, I'm investing into a minority position, I want the discounts to compensate for the fact that I would not have that control. So that's sort of the difference between those two. Okay, understood. Back to your definition, uh, there was something in there about without any sense of urgency, or I can't remember what exactly the phrase was related to a timeline. It yes. seems like in the situation of divorce, you may not be in full control of the timeline. How do you take that into consideration when you're working in a, in a divorce situation? That's a good question. Bear in mind that the definition in many instances is sort of baked into the engagement. What I mean by that is most companies, and Sarah, Sarah, if I'm wrong about this, please tell me, but my experience has been most companies have written into their uh, operating agreements 
the standard of value that would apply in a situation where it needs to be determined what the value of a, a, one of the owner's interests is. And so it will say very specifically in the in the in the in the owner's forget the phrase now, but the the, the operating manual for the company in the circumstance where a business interest needs to be valued as part of a divorce, the standard to be used will be fair market value. And so it's not it's it's much less a matter of the time needed to conduct the transaction as part of the divorce and more a, a question of what is the standard that the operating uh, agreement for the company says. And that's stipulated up front. And what that's one of the first pieces of information that I request when I'm looking to 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 sort of shape the parameters of an engagement, because then that dictates what a, what, what approach I take as I go forward into the engagement. OK, that well, makes me feel a little bit better. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. And so what I would say is it, you actually bring up a great point, Brian, and I would love to agree with you and say that most operating <laughs> agreements have these provisions. But, but unfortunately, but. <laughs> um, so, you know, what I think is important, and I have this conversation with people, um, business owners, colleagues, friends, it is really important you know, sometimes when you're starting a business, you're kind of bootstrapping, right? And I appreciate that. As an entrepreneur myself, I understand you're you're maybe dealing with the largest and most essential um, fire or need or opportunity as you start to start a business. So, um, if you've had you know kind of a a robo um, a, a robot lawyer uh, prepare your documents or you downloaded forms. Or maybe yeah. you used forms for a business entity, you know, several years ago. Um, you know, you had a business and you're just kind of dusting off that paperwork and reusing it. It is Stands the name. I mean, you guys would be shocked at some of the things we've seen. Um, no, I'm is... actually kind of sweating extra because all of this sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> It's really important. I would consider your operating agreement and your corporate records, just like a tax and estate plan, which is really important to this topic as well. A lot of times people view it as a point in time. Okay, I've got to get a will. That box is checked. Let's move on. Okay, I've got this great business idea. I'm so excited about my new logo and my new customers and my new website. Okay, fine, fine. We'll go to Rocket Lawyer and we'll create this thing. You should view these documents, especially as these kinds of life events happen, you know, cancer, divorce, pandemics, you know, partnership of agreements, um, growth opportunities. I would consider those just like a vehicle that need routine maintenance, hmm. get the oil changed. It is maybe not something you need to review annually, but if you haven't looked at your corporate documents, your tax and estate plans, um, some of those kind of core documents that are going to guide a situation where you may be making a, a, a change not on your terms, it's really important to have that evaluated by an expert. And I'm telling you, the couple hundred or maybe even a thousand dollars you might spend is going to save you a ton of time and heartache and cost later. So, Brian, unfortunately, many operating agreements are pretty threadbare um, in this area, or they may not have um, a really prescriptive uh, operating agreement, and that's a major issue that can cause contention in any change, and in, in particular, what can be an already contentious topic of divorce. Well said, and and such a good reminder, really, for anybody listening. Um, that's 
you know, I'm a box checker myself. So, you know, got that done, got that done. I, I, I'm big on the idea and not so much how to, you know, paper it. So very, very good point, Sarah. Um, okay. So next question, and this also makes me feel a little anxious, but I'm curious to get your take on it, Brian. What portion of the business is considered marital property? That's less a valuation question and more a legal question. For example, <clears throat> if I am doing a valuation as part of a divorce, whatever the interest that is owned by the business owner, let's say to lose or to use my last example, I said 40%. Let's say 40% of this interest is owned by, um, by, by the client or by the business owner then I determine what that 40% is. Again, bearing in mind everything I said earlier about discounts and about personal goodwill. Once that information has been provided by me, in essence, my piece of the puzzle is done. Now, if the, let's say the client or the business owner might have some compelling argument that they tried to make. Um, well, I am the one who helped Jane start the business. I was her bookkeeper for the first three years. And so I'm entitled to more than, than half of this 40% interest. That's something that I don't necessarily have anything to do with it. In fact, I'm not in those conversations at all. If you can, for example, provide some argument to your attorney that says, because of these three or four factors, I'm entitled to a larger percentage or maybe it is the case that, okay, let's stipulate that I've certainly have, uh, have some goodwill in, in the colloquial sense in these other areas over here. Then maybe we stipulate to whatever this value is, I get half of this 40% and I look, um, my position is looked on more favorably in these other areas over here that have nothing to do with, with the business's value. What I'm trying to say is my piece of the puzzle establishes the value of that interest based on the percentage ownership and based on the adjustments for the other issues that I just mentioned. Any other adjustment beyond that is sort of out of the scope or out of the realm of, of the scope of what I've been asked to do. Okay. Good to know. So Sarah? I think, I think the big takeaway, right, is that um, there's the valuation of the business and, you know, notwithstanding goodwill, you know, personal goodwill and, um, you know, how uh, you arrive at what that amount is and whether that's, you know, as it is not divisible, that plays a big factor. But what's important, especially as you may be planning your divorce and kind of trying to understand um, what the, if, if this is something that's maybe on the horizon for you, um, it's really important to make sure you've got those documents in order um, and to make sure and that you understand, let's say you are in a community property state and the business is held in an LLC of which you're a single member and it's effectively a pass-through LLC. I've had conversations where people are uh, misunderstand that, that that won't be subject to the divorce. You know, they think this is totally set off. It's in my name only. You know, my spouse will have um, no claim to this business and that may or may not be true. And so it's really, again, I, I hate to overemphasize it's really important that you're speaking to the right um, experts, whether that be your divorce attorney, a financial planner, to, to really understand, um, you know, what what is at stake. And especially if there's part, partial ownership, as things do get a little bit complex there, um, depending on partial interests, if a spousal waiver was signed when that interest was obtained. So, 
it don't make an, my, my big takeaway here is don't make an assumption that something either is or is not included. Um, definitely get clarity. And, and certainly it is something that can be negotiated. Kind of taking a big picture look at all the assets, maybe, you know, I tend to focus on home equity, obviously, considering what my W-2 job is, but maybe as part of the complete estate or, you know, the the big picture, that's something that can be, you know, leveraged or not, depending on what else is on the table. Mm-hmm. How are buy-sell agreements or existing partnerships affected, Sarah? So this is a, an interesting and tricky one. Um, so it depends on the overall entity structure. And if there's been a pre-agreement about these types of uh, transfers um, that, that could take place, often there are provisions in these documents for um, it, for, as example, divorce of a, you know, like, let's say you're going to acquire a 40 or 60 or 20, whatever percent of partial ownership. Um, again, kind of to my, the answer to my last question, you know, was there a spousal waiver? Um, there are legal instruments and contracts that can be put in place that can uh, simplify um, the understanding of these doc, you know, the understanding of what's going to unfold as we work through a divorce decree. But it's really important. My opinion is people sometimes don't want to have the conversations about what what might be an uncomfortable or contentious uh, divestor of a partner, um, both marital or otherwise. And it is really important to consider, especially as you're starting to sign those documents and it's kind of that honeymoon period of everyone being really excited, um, both you know, pre-marriage and pre-partnership and pre-business um, to kind of consider the things, uh, the path that our, our natural lives take us on, you know, um, death, divorce, uh, disagreements, um, changes in seedings. I'd sort of go back to the way, uh, did I lose you guys? Yes, you froze yeah, for a second. Oh, sorry. That's um, okay. Well, it's perfect because I was just about to point it back to Brian and say, it, it really, de- it, it may not have relevance to the valuation of the business, um, but it could, depending on, again, the marketability of those shares and, and whether or not the, the interest is controlling or not. But but Brian, I'll, I'll, I don't know if you have a perspective on that and certainly would welcome your disagreement. I, Sarah, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've ever disagreed with you, and this is not one of them. So just to sort of continue along that same mind, said if you don't have your ducks in a row with regard to all of the documents at the beginning of the relationship whether it be uh, um the business relationship or the marriage there can be some really uncomfortable conversations later on and i'll give you a quick story related to evaluation that i did i was approached by a business owner and this is not a divorce well, this is not a personal divorce it's a business divorce but the elements are very similar So the business owner came to me and said, I need to uh, engage you because I need to buy out my partner. And the first question I always ask is, okay, what are the ownership interests? And she says, we're 50-50 owners. And I don't know of any good operating agreement that endorses a 50-50 ownership because it basically means nobody's in charge, right? (laughs) And so... I said, well, what, what? before we go any further in this conversation, I would advise that you um, have a conversation with your partner because very honestly, 
based on the fact that you're both 50% owners, that your partner could easily be buying you out instead of you buying her out. And she's like, well, there's no way. I, I do all the work. Part, uh, the, the customers don't even know who she is. She's there half the time. Nobody. She. I'm the one who needs to buy her out. It's like, well, go, leave, have the conversation, and then let me know how it turns out. She came back the next day. Could you believe that this so-and-so wants to buy me out? <laughs> These conversations are absolutely unnecessary if it is made clear up front in the formation documents who has what responsibilities, what does the buy-sell agreement say, if if necessary, getting to the specifics of what on what basis will the business be valued. These are all things that need to take place, conversations that need to take place at the foundational elements of the, the, the business being started as opposed to when the issue comes up that actually will require the valuation. I, I want to echo that I would not advocate for a 50-50 relationship in a business. And I see it or, all the time. Yes. All the time, especially if the couple is married. I just had a client who it was really her business, her company, but she started it when they were married. And just to get the check the box on the, you know, the documentation, they were 50 yep. 50 owners. And that's a big problem. I mean, I see this frequently. Mm. And, and even so 50 50 is not recommended. And let's say, it's also, this is another area where um, let's say you want to have 50-50, right? You, you want the, the idea of what you like about 50-50 is the share of the proceeds or the profits um, of a particular business you want to, to share in 50-50. You can have a 50-50 um, arrangement for, for the profits, but have a mechanism. There needs to be a 51% partner from a vote and control aspect but, you know, you don't want if there are true, let's imagine a scenario where there is a true 50-50 partnership and you want the, the profits and proceeds and distributions, you know, during the life of the business to be shared equally. There is a way to do that within the, um, again, we're going back to kind of corporate structure, you know, agreements. You know, that's why these are so important um, to still create that person that ultimately is in charge and has the controlling interest um, and may have the majority vote. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also, you know, again, you can kind of pre, I, I think we keep talking about the, 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 the common theme here has been plan, proactivity, you know, continued maintenance throughout the changes and of the life cycle of a business. That's going to be here too, right? That's, that's exactly the thing that needs to be done is you've got to be proactive about those pieces. Never a 50-50 from a controlling interest. And there are vehicles from the distribution perspective, if that's what you're, if that's why you like the 50, 50. Okay. So you're talking about um, if you want to share in the profits equally, let's talk about debts and liabilities. Let's say that the business has a lot of debt. How does that affect, I guess, first of all, how does that affect the valuation, Brian? If I'm valuing the business, there is a difference and Sarah can, attest to this there's a difference between the enterprise value and the value of the equity in the business so in other words i apply whatever valuation method i'm going to apply let's say i apply a discounted cash flow model and that gives me five million dollars that gives me the enterprise value but in order to determine the equity there's an additional adjustment that i need to make which is to add the current assets and then subtract the current and long-term liabilities 
doing that gets me to the equity in the business. And so $5 million enterprise value may end up being, you know, obviously depending on what's on the balance sheet, maybe four and a half million of equity. That incorporates the analysis or into the analysis, adjusting for whatever liabilities there might be. And in a nutshell, that is the most straightforward way of doing it. Sarah, let's hear so, from you. Yeah. So um, how we handle debts and liabilities, you know, from the perspective of a transaction where, you know, one partner or, you know, potentially a spouse is going to be buying out another um, or there's going to be a complete exit. You know, we we tend to take the perspective of, um, well, I'm going to oversimplify. I'm going to use what Brian did earlier. I'm going to make this easier than it should be. I'm going to assume um, a sort of Dumb standard. Dumb it down for me, Sarah. <laughs> uh, kind of a, we like for businesses to transfer effectively on terms that we would call debt-free, cash-free. Um, occasionally, and what, so what that would mean is if I've got 100% of a business, I'll, you, I'll continue with Brian's example and say it's worth $5 million and we're going to sell that business to an unrelated third party, uh, a willing buyer. Um, we would do that. It would be the purchase price. And then what would be distributed? All debts and liabilities would need to be cleared off of the books. You'd have to pay off any loans, um, any equipment loans, any um, accounts payable. And then we would balance that against cash or assets in the build in the business, um, cash assets, not like machinery or equipment, um, and uh, AP. So cash and AP less, um, sorry, cash and AR less AP and debt, right? So when you get into a situation like this, where one partner, especially going through a divorce, is is pursuing this, you may not want to to close out that debt. That debt may be essential to the operation of the business. It could be equipment loans or a form of um, working capital uh, in inventory or other items that are required for the business. And so that also has to be taken into account from the valuation and the purchase price paid by one party to another. To oversimplify, it, it gets complicated um, when you're going through a divorce and, you know, businesses need cash to operate. Um, most businesses have some form of debt. It's important to kind of consider that um, and the ability to, to maintain that debt, you know, when there's going to be a single owner or, you know, at, if it is going to need to be cleared out in order to transition to an unrelated third party. Another kind of important piece to consider about the debts and liabilities is let's say um, there's really attractive debt and that debt's gonna be assumed, right? Can that person qualify for that debt on their own? And you probably run into this a lot when you're kind of talking about homes. It, it's, it can get really sticky um, when you're working through that with a, with a business owner, when we're going from you know, maybe two guarantors down to one or four guarantors down to, to one, you know, that type of thing can, can really create some complexity and thus limit the ability for the business to earn the revenues. A lot of times too, businesses and conflict is created between partners um, and partners of all kinds, not just marital partners, when there is financial distress. So in the example of like what Brian said, I, I was working with a business owner where they were parting ways because the business was performing poorly 
and there was a significant amount of of debt um, in the business that was no longer sustained by the operations of the business. So now we have kind of an opposite issue where sometimes the concern is what value is going to be distributed to the two parties or what's one going to have to buy out of the other. But when there's kind of a financial distress where liabilities and debts far exceed the cash or assets and the, the, the cash flows of a business, that becomes another place. Who's responsible for that liability? And this is a place that we run into. Um, I'm, I hope I'm going to make the saying correct here. Um, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. Um, when what we're really distributing out of a business is that the remaining liabilities, if ultimately what's going to happen is the business is going to be closed or otherwise dissolved, is how we attribute those those outstanding liabilities or debts um, as that happens. And that can be another sort of complicated area to explore. Before I let Brian um, speak again, let me just kind of throw out there that this is an opportunity to mention that and this is kind of a tough, you know, a tough thing to say, but I, I think it needs to be said that, you know, the family lawyer is maybe not the best advisor on some of these issues. I see quite a few of my clients who use their family lawyer. Lawyers give very bad financial advice. I'm I'm just being serious. I mean, I had a I had a client who called me and said, you know, my lawyer suggested that I just quit making the house payment because they were trying to sort of flesh out the ex who was occupying the house. And I was like, dude, I'm about to qualify you for a loan individually. You can't have a late real estate payment. And and he said, I didn't think so, but you know, how do I handle this with the lawyer? And I said, well, I'll, I'll call the lawyer and explain that, you know, I, I realize what you're trying to do and you do, you know, negotiate these things, but you can't, you can't advise somebody to do something that's going to wreck their credit. Brian, what would you like to add? Well, on that point, I would say attorneys are like probably the rest of the population in that there are some that are highly, highly competent and highly familiar with all financial issues. I can, I, if, I don't want to start calling any names because I invariably miss a couple, but I've worked with some attorneys who are absolutely brilliant and, for example, know the valuations world as well as I do and are able to speak intelligently on that issue. The other end of the spectrum are some lawyers who literally would have trouble adding 50 and 50, and I am not exaggerating. So in many ways, it's good to have somebody who is, for example, a CDFA, a Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, who can sort of keep an eye on all of the financial uh, arrangements as it relates to the dissolution of a marriage, so much so that if you have an attorney who is deficient in that area, you at least have someone who can you know, make sure that your interests are covered in, in that space. Going back to the conversation that Sarah was just having, I think, I mean, not think, I know we're saying the same thing, the difference is that Sarah, many of her transactions are uh, probably the majority of her transactions are in the context of ownership changing interests. And so, yes, you certainly would want to make sure that your current assets, you add those to the pie and the, the current and long term liabilities, you subtract them from the pie. 
for me, it is rarely the case that there is actually going to be a change in ownership. And such is the case that, okay, given that there is not going to be a change in ownership, what is the value of this asset? And again, that adjustment that gets you from the enterprise, the value of the entity, or to that port, that piece of the entity, to the value of the equity associated with that ownership is a pretty straightforward adjustment, and it has to be made. Sarah and I said it in completely different ways, but believe me, we're talking about the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I believe you. I mean, I I think it's important to have kind of, you know, both both sides of that thought process, right? And so, bringing in someone like a CDFA is, a, I mean, an excellent idea. Your checks in the mail, Brian. I'll pay you later for just adding a great point to that. But but that's really what this show is all about: is helping people who are planning maybe a big change to think through all the contingencies, right? And so I feel like people get married because they're in love and everything is wonderful. And then when it doesn't work out and, you know, things happen frequently, at least in my unscientific studies, I don't see people with a plan to split things up. And, you know, the family lawyer is really the one driving the bus on a lot of those decisions. So, Here's another question, and um, Brian, let's start with you. What would you tell someone who is considering selling the business as part of a divorce process? What would I tell someone who's considering selling the business? Okay, I, I promise you this is not going to sound like it's coming from me. Somebody says to me, I'm, I'm looking to sell my business. The very first thing that I do is <laughs> says, there's a wonderful young lady I need to introduce you to. Her name is Sarah Goodman. That <laughs> happens probably three or four times a month. If you're looking to actually sell the business, then my piece of the puzzle, my, um, my, my, my contribution to that effort is surplus to requirements. Because obviously, as part of being able to sell the business, Sarah has to go through the process of putting some value on it. You know, there may be some minor differences between the way that Sarah values a company because of the fact that she's looking to sell it as compared to me who just wants to know the intrinsic value of the business and by extension, the value of any interest in that business being valued. But if the commitment is there to sell the business, then very honestly, you're having less of a conversation with me and more of one with Sarah. Yeah. So, so thank you, Brian. And and thank you for all of those great introductions, my friend. Again, you know, Brooke uh, says, Brooke said it best. She checks in the mail. Um, the, uh, <laughs> what is important and, and what I think can be frustrating for people is um, they tend to think about value from the closest thing they know, um, their real estate, um, maybe a, a vehicle or another large kind of asset purchase. They tend to think about value is, you know, as, as a very straightforward, you know, single number, you know, with some small variability. But if I put my primary residence on the market, there's a value for that business. I mean, or, or, there's a value for that home, right? And it's a discrete value. You know, appraisers come up with that specific value. Um, and while it's based on kind of market trends, it, it's very um, straightforward. It's often very straightforward. Business valuation, it's part art, part science. And so what Brian was really alluding to is what are the circumstances um, and under which a sale or a buyout is going to be made? 
when you're buying out a partner, um, whether that be a former spouse as part of a divorce or as you know, a partner that's moving on to other things, or maybe one partner's retiring and the other wants to continue working, that's always a little bit of a different scenario and a different value than both current, you know, whoever the ownership, you know, let's say it is a husband and wife, the husband and wife own the business and they're going to fully depart that business and transfer the entire business enterprise to a third party. The value and the, the value to that buyer is different than a, a partnership buyout. And so a lot of times people make the mistake, okay, my business is, you know, 100% value is worth $5 million. I owe Sally 50%. I'm going to pay her out two and a half million. The business I could go out on the market tomorrow and I could sell it for 5 million. Those may or may not be the case. And I know that's frustrating and I wish I could tell you it wasn't the case. Um, When business owners are looking to sell the business, any business, whether they're going through divorce or otherwise, my first conversation with them is, you know, can it be sold, right? The intrinsic value of a business and the cash flow generation for current owners, if if so much of the secret sauce is in their brain, like let's think about a business like a psychotherapy practice, or maybe it's a husband and wife dentist office, them trying to sell their business to a third party is going to look very different if they are just um, effectively the board of directors on an operating business where there's a strong management team that will continue on with the business after the sale. So for anyone considering a sale, we have to consider, I'm going to again oversimplify kind of three factors. What is the fair market value of the business? What is the transferability of the business? And what, 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 scenario and what is the target buyer for that business and are they available to to acquire that business at this time and i say that again to the to the context of like the dental practice is very different than say selling light manufacturing where the owner lives in another state so all of those factors have to kind of be considered um when you're thinking about pursuing an exit brian any rebuttal from you (laughs) <laughs> it's not in any way a rebuttal. Uh, keying in on something that Sarah said, though, regarding the differing values. And you've probably heard some people say, and Sarah, you alluded to this early in the conversation, where I've heard people say that the business is worth you know, three times net profit or one times revenue. That is so absolutely inadequate in terms of being able to determine a value. And let me tell you exactly why. Let's say, uh, to continue your example, Sarah, it was a dental office. It's a dental office. And if you look through a database of sold dental offices, you can very much come up with probably, oh, let's say 100 dental offices that have sold in the last year. And the average sales to revenue is one or the average sales to net income is three but that average is made up of 100 different data points and so on that average of three you might have had some that sold at 0.05 to one and others that sold at 50 to one and so each business in that database or in that data set has combined to, to give you an average of three. There's nothing that says that the specific business that you are valuing 
is like the average business in this entire data set. So a long way of saying that the dynamics of each business is so unique and the different moving parts that put together to make this business profitable and or successful is unique to that business. And so uh, a, a sort of a blanket 3x re- or 3x profitability or 1x revenue it it literally is called the back of the napkin calculation for a reason. It's worth exactly that. And it gives you literally a 10,000 foot view of what your business might be worth. But if you need it for a precise reason, such as determining the value of a buyout in the context of a divorce, or if you're looking to have it sold as you would when, when, when Sarah is doing it, that sort of an approach is woefully inadequate. I, I couldn't agree more. Getting a professional valuation from, you know, from Brian, it is so important. And I can't tell you how frequently that I actually see the valuations completed, not by Brian, but by others, where even professionals in the space calculate when we talk about these multipliers, let's say we're talking about net earnings. Um, we There's a couple of different... Oh, what net earnings? Seller's discretionary earnings, <laughs> EBIT earnings, EBITDA earnings. What is recastable and what isn't? I see professionals make pretty significant errors in the calculation of those mm-hmm. figures where sometimes as a matter of opinion, they'll say, well, the market salary for this owner is, you know, you know, $50,000. And it's like, okay, all right, I want you to go out and hire someone for for this for $50,000. So professionals, professionals, individuals that this is their full-time job make errors, significant errors in calculating what are the bottom line earnings. And then there's a multiplier on on that. And it's also just an incredibly short-sighted way to value a business. I'll I'll tag on to what Brian said. Let's imagine a a 30-year-old business that operates in the top 10% from like a benchmark perspective and profitability. The industry at large is around 15% um, average profit margins, and this business is just crushing it at 22% profit margins. They've got some competitive moats around their kind of core service offering. They've got tenured staff and they've got a strong management team in place, and they have $1 million in EBITDA earnings. Is that business worth the same as a three-year-old business that's operating at 10% margins with high staff turnover and no management team in place? Of course not. Of course they're not worth the same. And I won't even be so foolish as to tell you, even though I've set up my dumb example, that my first one is worth more than the second. Because a simple calculation off of the earnings of the business is such a short shot, short-sighted and incomplete view of the business. And a lot of these like online valuation tools where you fill in a web form, I mean, you might as well throw a dart at a number on a dartboard. I think they'd be just as accurate. And I'm sorry to be so sharp about it, but I, I deal with it a lot. And it's a really incorrect way to value the business for any purpose. Sure. Well, and- 
you know, you guys are numbers people, but there's also sort of an X factor, isn't there? I mean, you know, businesses can really dictate or not dictate, but take up a lot of someone's identity. And the business owner may be so aligned with what they do that even if they have a great management team, selling it would kind of, if they're transferring ownership to someone else who's maybe not as vivacious or well-known or, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, that, that there's no way to really determine the depreciation of the value. Did that make sense? It does. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I think they're especially, you know, I think about social media and Instagram and the things that I follow on social media, you know, there's definitely kind of a, a an X factor that is hard to quantify. And I think it's the same thing with a home. And I talk to people all the time who disagree on what their home is worth. So having a professional like, you know, you two in the mix really brings it just brings more data, better decision-making. So we're almost out of time. Um, I would like to super short answers. If you could give one piece of advice to a business owner where a divorce or some sort of sale or transaction would take place, what would it be, Sarah? Fail to plan, plan to fail. Get your ducks in a row, you know, manage your documents and your contracts. We've talked a lot about being proactive. It's really important to have a plan. I'm not teeing that up just for you, Brooke. It is it's super, super important. Get your, plan, get your plan in place. Okay. Brian, how about you? Bottom line would be have your financials in such a way that somebody from the outside can come in and pick them up and understand what's going on in your business. That's not just a good business practice. It makes it much easier for people like me who need to perform an analysis as it relates to the value of your business. Great. Ex I mean, excellent advice from both of you. Lots to think about. I really appreciate both of you making the time to be here. Um, Brian, what is your website? bwavaluations.com. Sarah, how about you? Eminencestrategies.com. Eminence, E-M-I-N-E-N-C-E. Eminence. That's it. Got it. Okay. Listeners, thank you very much for being with us. Um, that's it for today and have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to Plan for Divorce, Your Next Chapter with host Brooke Benson. We hope today's episode has given you a new perspective on divorce and food for thought as you make some important decisions. Until we talk again, hang in there. You are not alone.